So don't listen to anything I'm about to say. Uh, well, maybe not on that one. All right, here we go. Uh, I want to welcome you, and in order to bring you up to speed as to where we are, let me say this. It really is extraordinary, as I said during the worship time, to see what happens when you ask the Lord to actually lead. To, that's what this church does. There's a prayer that we, we pray a lot around here, and there's a prayer that I pray all the time. Almost every time I'm ever praying for the church, you're going to hear me say something like this. Lord, you're the head of this church. Not me, not the staff, not some person. You're the head of Lake Sam. So lead us. Take us where we're your instruments. We want to do your will. And then I always say, if we're doing something that's impeding your will, if we're doing something that is not letting your will get done, get us out of the way. Because we want your will to be done here. And in that, we count on the strong right arm of the Lord to see his will done at Lake Sam, right? Now, that comes in so many ways. That will work itself out. But extraordinarily it has been in the last few months, as happens every once in a while, where the sermons have just been strikingly led by him. You know, we're in Luke and we're doing Empowered in Luke and we're still in Luke and we're still doing Empowered. But we haven't even cracked Luke for two months. Because what we're doing is, is just allowing the Lord to lead us in this where he's got us, which is the master's level now. We saw what Jesus did in Luke and we learned from it. But now he's putting us in it. And so, for example, just again to catch us up, what happened was is that in January, I, came, I got a word from the Lord, I thought, and I came and I gave it to the church and I asked you, do you bear witness to it? And the word was this. It was that the Lord said that he had flipped a switch and that the, the culture, America, was entering into a new season. And it was this Romans 1 ratchet down. In other words, people had pushed God away, pushed his truth away, pushed him away from themselves enough. Now understand, when people push God away, why doesn't he just immediately leave? Because he knows what's coming. He knows what happens if he doesn't give grace. He knows how painful it is, and he loves us. And he's trying in love to get us to repent. It's unfortunate that love doesn't bring more repentance, isn't it? It's unfortunate that someone giving you grace doesn't bring more repentance in your life, it, but it doesn't, right? But he does that with great patience, greater than we would ever extend to somebody. But then there comes a moment in time where, again, in love now, he will let the culture sort of ratchet down into a new place where there's going to be more difficulty, where there's going to be more consequences of your actions playing out in your life in a way that's difficult. And this is what we talked about in January, and this is before a lot of the stuff that's happened in the last few months that has just sort of made it obvious to everybody that something has changed in a very real way, right? You can look at the Supreme Court decision and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about that, but much more than that. It's in everything. It's just this... Anyway, I, 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 but what I want to say is, is that when he does that, the thing that we brought up several weeks ago now, when I got back from being gone with Dave and all that and wedding... Uh, what he brought was this idea that, that whenever he's ratcheting down the culture, he'll come to Christians first, and he'll shake them. And I told people back then, I said, there's going to be things happening in your life that are going to be different than they were before. You're going to think God should have acted by now. You're going to go through something, and you're going to think this is the normal pattern and the normal play of how this thing works out, and it doesn't work out that way. It's worse. It's harder. He doesn't seem to show up. He doesn't seem to be there, right? And we had those sermons, even when I was gone, where Alex Lawrence and, and Serenity both spoke to this so plainly, right? When God doesn't seem to be there, he is, but what's going on? And so again, God has been leading us. God has been doing this with us. He's been equipping us. That's what church is. It's supposed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and much of that has to do with what we've been doing these last weeks, where we've been saying, when things ratchet down, it's important for us to know that it would, that it would start in Christians' lives too, right? I mean, what God says is, excuse me, uh, indeed the sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plans to his servants. He reveals what he's going to do to us so that when it happens to us, we don't lose heart. We don't give up, right? 
And as God takes us through that, watch what he's doing. One thing he's doing is strengthening us. Because when we go through something that's difficult and not like what we think it should be and not the pattern that we're used to, and we have to lean on God ever more, even when he doesn't seem to be showing up, that's strengthening us against a time when that starts to happen in the culture. Life being different, things being different than what they expect. Gee, it got bad, but it only got so bad, and then God seemed to stop it or something's, you know, but gee, there's, a, there's another floor now. And people lose hope and despair. Not just people, Christians. Christians will literally lose their hope, right? So it's pretty good that God tells us that he's going to shake anything that can be shaken. Because after all, the reason why he's shaking is, first of all, because we're corrupt like the world. It's not just the culture that's gone down. Christianity's gone down, too. There's all kinds of stuff we're involved in, which is not glorifying to God. All kinds of stuff in all of our lives, right? And the bottom line is, is that he's shaking us. But it's not just sin. It's also things that we lean on. Bank accounts, houses, jobs, security. Things like this. And what God's doing is, is that he's coming, he's saying, those things are much more temporal than ephemeral. You know the words? ephemeral meaning wispy than what you think they're not as solid as you think we think that that's the floor it's not the floor and once you see the floor part and you fall through it then you start fishing around about where is the bottom here and what you find out is it, it's God God is the rock-solid thing that we're building our lives on right that's the thing that sustains from the wind and the waves and so what God does is he takes us through these experiences so that we don't fall. He tells us what he's doing and then does it so that we don't get despair and lose it, but that we learn a new level of faith in God. And then when the culture starts going through it, we become useful to them, right? This is the pruning. He prunes us so that we can become more profitable. And we can help people that are going through despair and tell them, though it seems like there isn't any solid ground anymore, there is. And his name is Jesus, right? And he is God Most High. You see, this is what we've been doing, and you can see how much the Lord's been doing this, but now let me tell you something, okay? I'm kind of done, me, personally, and I was done some weeks ago. When I, when I came back and I gave that first sermon, I thought, oh, that's just going to be one sermon, and then God had to be two sermons, and I thought, well, that'll be it, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and, then, and here we are about four or five weeks out in this thing now, and I'm kind of, I really was, last week we did that discussion about really following God. And just being about God, and it was great. But the bottom line is, is that I got to this particular place, and I said to myself, well, I'm done. And I went out for my walk this week, and I said, God, where are you going to take us next? And I was thinking maybe back into Luke, or I was thinking maybe this women's sermon that, I, that he's been doing in my head for a long time, and, and I was looking forward to that or something else. I was looking forward to something new. And I went out and asked him what the new thing was, and he didn't say anything. And so... I was like, well, what do I do? Now, I, I'm wanting to do something right here. I want you to understand. I'm sort of pulling back the curtain, and I want you to see God interacting in my life because I want you to see how he interacts in our lives. This isn't the only way he does it, but I want, you to be I want to be transparent with you so that as God is moving you through things, you see what it feels and looks like to be going through this journey with God where he's raising you up. So the point is, is I go out on my walk and I'm asking him, and he's not saying anything on Monday and nothing on Tuesday either. Now, that's pretty late for me already. And on Tuesday, I'm kind of like, what's going on? But on Tuesday, towards the end of the time, I started getting this little phrase in my head. But I got phrases in my head all the time. And then the phrase was, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I was like, well, that's nice, but I just kept moving on. Right? You know what I mean? It's just a, another little scripture. I got scriptures in my head all the time, thank God. Right? So the point is, I just, but I go out on, on Wednesday, and wouldn't you know it, doggone it, there, of all the choruses, do you, are, how many of you were old enough to know in the 70s when choruses came into the church? We started singing, like, my favorite song of all the choruses was, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. 
Now, that's the most beautiful song to this day. That's probably my favorite song to worship to. And we would sing that for an hour. Same verse, that, that. There wasn't any choruses or bridges or breaks or anything. It was that. But when you know it, there's, and all those choruses, and I liked all the choruses but one. There was one chorus that I hated from the first time I heard it until now. And it was, the joy of the Lord is my strength. 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 I hate that song. I hate it. It doesn't, the melody is so stupid. And the, and the joy of the Lord part of it is so deep. You know what I mean? It has such a, re- it, sounds, it seems like substantive, and here's this little sort of kindergarten rhyming, you know, thing going on inside of there, and I just hate that song. And here I am on Wednesday morning singing that song in my head. It's stuck in my head, right? And I'm, and I'm going on and I say, get out of my head so I can figure out what God wants me to talk about. So finally I said, oh, well, maybe God's, you know, taken me to this place so that I'll actually think about the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I started thinking about it. And now I want to say the second thing that's kind of bad. I don't have any idea what the heck that means. The joy of the Lord is my strength is a wonderful poetic, right? When you hear that, when you first hear that, you somehow understand it, don't you? But break it down and tell me what the heck that means. Because it doesn't mean anything. It, it does, it turns out, of course. But, it, but, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy, strength. It just doesn't tell me what that means. See? It's just hard. It, it, it just is like it wisps away when you try and lock it down on that. That's why he can say this and mean it. And, and so I sat there and I went, that's weird. This verse kind of disappears on me as I try and figure out what it means. So I thought, well, if I want to understand it, I should go to its context. So I pull out my phone right there on my walk, and I look up, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And guess what I find? I find a context, a moment in time in the Israelites' history, which is a fit to what we're going through right now, which which literally my mouth dropped and I went, oh my gosh. The, the, the meaning because of the context, astounding and extremely relevant to us right now and even more so than to the ones who first heard it. And I'll show you exactly what that means after we get done praying. So who's our prayer? Michelle, where is she? Ah, okay. This is, this, first of all, Fuller Seminary. Come on now, that's really cool. You gotta stand up, come on. This is Fuller Seminary, but she and her husband, Andrew, have been doing our youth for years, and they just have such a heart for ministry, both pastors, kids, a wonderful family, just such a heart for God and doing it the right way. And I'm watching, and I want to tell you, and this is why I'm taking a minute here. I'm watching God train these two people up for ministry. I'm watching as he takes them through experience after experience, and I see this maturity and deepening and resonance that's coming in there that is better than gold. So that's what's happening in their life. So perfect person to have pray. So Michelle, pray for the sermon. Let's church. God, thank you that you speak to each of us in ways that we can hear. Um, God, I just thank you for the word that you've given Kurt. And God, just even today be speaking to each one of us in a way that we can hear it. And I pray for Hope City Church in Portland as they are meeting and working so hard to reach their community. That you would be present and working in and through them as well. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Michelle. All right, now, some of you will remember that back when I did the sermon about what's going on in the world, and I talked about God shaking the church and so on, I showed you something, which is one of the reasons why we Christians lose heart, and the whole culture loses heart, is because God moves in cycles that are longer than our lives. 
See, we think if, if, if the culture's going bad in our lifetime, we think God ought to respond because we watch the culture go from point A to point B and we think God needs to do something about that. And God has, of course, a bigger framework in mind. And so he moves in what we call 400-year cycles. And we'll see this over and over again. It's not only 400-year cycles, but I just want you to see this. There's going to be a yet another one today from 1,000 to 600. But let me just show you, this is the context of this verse. And the, the verse comes out of Nehemiah. Okay? Now, Nehemiah happens all the way at the right-hand side over here at 445. But let's come over here to 1,000 B.C. and look what happened right there. And that is the people have come into the land. The Jewish people have come into the land. They've actually conquered it. They've actually took possession of it about 1,200, which is another 400 in here that I can't show you because it would just make it confusing. But the bottom line is, is that at 1,000 B.C., you got King Saul, David, and Solomon. You got three kings that unite the kingdom, and they got a king, and there it is, 1,000 at about, about 1,050 is when that starts, okay? What happens is, is that we go out just a little bit further, and what happens is about 930 B.C., the kingdom divides. It's the son of Solomon, who's an idiot, and, you know, wise, wise dad, stupid son. Nobody's ever felt like that before. No laugh on that? Or why, your son's sitting next to you or something? The son always thought he was smarter than you. Here it is, okay? All right. Kingdom divided, Israel and Judah, okay? Now what happens is, is that like I say, Israel, the people have been in the land for 200 years, and they're following other gods. They're, they're not getting it right. And then there goes another 200 years from that point in time. And what they get to is at about 722, uh, Israel is eradicated by Assyria. So when the kingdom divides, 10 northern tribes, 2 southern tribes, this part becomes known as Israel or Samaria. This part becomes known as Judah. These northern tribes, what ends up happening is, is that, is that God tells them for 400 years, if you don't quit going after these other gods, at some point in time it's going to ratchet down, and that last ratchet for you is going to be it, and you're going to disappear. And they do. The, the ten northern tribes of Israel to this day are not to be found. They intermarried. The Assyrians had them intermarry and so on. They were completely eradicated. The land was completely taken over the whole nine yards. Okay? So that happens in 720. Now, Judah's left, and they're thinking, well, we're the special ones. Israel never had a good king. Then they all chased after other gods. Israel at least had a couple, and they're thinking, well, we're the ones that are good. But they weren't so good, right? And so God is telling them for 400 years, knock it off. Don't do this. Didn't you see what I did to Israel? What's so special about you? I'm going to do it to you too. And so what happens is, in 605 and then 597, there's three different times the Babylonians come in. But the Babylonians come in, and Judah is exiled to Babylon. And when this happens, understand, it's not like they come and bring their moving vans and move you to Babylon. They come and they destroy everything. They brutally kill the vast majority of the population of the land. Murder in, in, in gross, in horrible, 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 horrible stories. I wouldn't even want to talk about them on Sunday morning, the kinds of things that they did. But the bottom line is they take the remnant and they, and they enslave them in Babylon. Okay? Now, that should have been the end of Judah just like it was the end of Israel. But God, 70 years later, by prophetic, but as he wanted to do, and 70 years later, God miraculously brings the Jewish people back. And it is a miracle. It doesn't happen. Particularly not in 70 years. Because in 70 years, people remember how bad you were to them. And they don't go back like nice people liking you. They go back hating you. And they could become a big, strong nation again and attack you. So this is stupid in a way. But what's happened in, in Babylon is another king has come in from Persia. And Babylon's been taken over. And this next king is the one that sets them loose. So 70 years later, miraculously, the Jewish people are returned. And they come in, they build a temple. And they're thinking, initially they're thinking, this is it. This is going to be restored. And then they go through about 70 to 80 years of, excuse me, but just crap. It's just, the temple is kind of a joke. The, their enemies are attacking them at will. Anytime their crops grow up, their enemies come in and just take them from. They're living just as much as slaves and beaten down people as they were in Babylon. In fact, worse. So it's very bad for them. And then in 445 or thereabouts, Nehemiah shows up. 
he's come. He said, hey, I'm grieved about how my people are doing back in the land. Would you let me go? And he's in Babylon, and the, or now Persia. But the Persian king says, sure, go ahead and do it. And he comes back, and he looks around. He says, what needs to be done? And he says, well, the first thing we need to do is protect these people from these people that keep stealing all their stuff. So let's build a wall. Let's become a people again. Let's become a people that can defend ourselves again. If you have a wall, defend yourself. You see it? So he starts to rebuild the wall. Now, that goes pretty well. God blesses it. And the people have to, you know, they literally at one point in time are having to carry their sword in one hand and the trowel in the other. So they're building the wall while they're defending themselves from enemies that are trying to keep them from building the wall because they know once they have a wall, they can start protecting themselves and they'll start raising up as a people again. Now, for us today, to really get the drift of this, I need you to do something. I need you to become an Israelite in that day. I need you to put yourself in their shoes and be experiencing what they've been experiencing. For 70, 80 years, back in the land, it's been miserable, horrible, of defeat all the way. But now we're building a wall. And these same enemies are trying to keep us from building the wall, but we succeeded. We built it. We can defend ourselves now. We have some security now. We're not living in fear all the time anymore. We have safe, a safe haven, a place where we can defend ourselves, a place where we can be secure. We're not the beaten down anymore. We're not just the bullied. We can start, right, fighting back. You see, now when we do this, you see how a pride's starting to come up? And, and by the way, pride can be bad, but it doesn't have to be. There's a pride of personhood, right? There's a, they're starting to raise up, aren't they? Now, they've done this in the past, been very prideful about the fact that they were the chosen people, and then they got exiled to Babylon. So, all right? So God does something right at the end of, the, of this wall. Here's what he does. Now, watch this. On October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. And remember, these are people that have not only experienced the, the 70 years or so of being in the land, they also have family members, parents or grandparents or so on, who were killed and, and exiled. They know people who were part of the exile. There's probably still some even there. See what I mean? Old enough. So the point is, all of them are before. They're old enough to understand. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping people to understand each passage. Now here's what's being said here. These people are busy about feeding themselves and trying to stay secure, and they're not, they're not spending a lot of time on other pursuits, and in particular what they're not doing is spending a lot of time with God. They're just surviving. What they don't get is the bigger picture, that 400-year cycle. These are people who have been subjected to exile and then restoration, but not kind of a weak, right? And then now this wall. And so the point is, is these are people who are in a place to where they're not thinking big picture. They're just thinking now. We built a wall, what does this mean? Where are we going? And all this kind of stuff. And then what God does is he brings the law to them and he gives them passages like this. I could read you a hundred of them because there are. But I just want to read you a couple of them because I want you to see the kinds of things that as you guys are the Israelites who are experiencing this moment where the law is being read to you after you see this wall rebuilt, knowing the pain of the exile and the pain of the return. Now all of a sudden something good's happening. Now watch. Malachi was actually written after this. But Malachi tells us where these people's hearts are. Remember I keep saying, because it doesn't happen in our lifetime, we get to thinking that God isn't moving. So we've looked at this. You said, God says to the Israelites, it doesn't pay to serve God. What did we ever get out of it? When did we, when, when we did what he said and went around with long faces, serious about God of the angel armies, what difference did it make? 
Those who take the life in their own hands, they're the lucky ones. The people that live according to the way the world says to live, they seem to have it really good. We have it really bad. They break all the rules and get ahead anyway. They push God to the limit and they don't get hurt by it. <laughs> see? Now, what do you, now, you see what they're saying? Now, this is where these people are thinking. They're thinking, God doesn't move. He may be there, but he doesn't do anything. So what's the point? You see the heart of them? This is written a few years after the walls rebuilt, and this thing is read, read to them. So I want you to see the, the mentality of them. But now watch what they heard on that day. We forget quickly. But watch what they heard on that day. These are some of these passages. This is just one of them. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, King Manasseh, one of the kings of Judah, has done many detestable things. He's even more wicked than the Amorites who lived in the land before Israel. He has caused the people of Judah to sin with his idols, going after other gods. So this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I will bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of those who hear about it will tingle with horror. I will judge Jerusalem by the same standard I use for Samaria and the same measure I use for the family of Ahab. I will wipe away the people of Jerusalem as one wipes a dish and turns it upside down. Now understand, when that prophecy is given, there's nobody in Judah that believes it. That prophecy is given, it's, it's hard to mark exactly when, but it's, it's Manasseh, it's quite a ways, it's quite a ways away from the, even the exile. The people in Judah are thinking, we're God's chosen people. We are never going to go down. The people in America say, we are privileged people. America is never going to experience these kinds of things. Because we can't conceive of it. And yet you go back in history and you see the Romans and the English and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and a whole line of people that never thought anything like this was ever going to happen to them. You see it? But because it wasn't happening in this shorter time frame. Now, I want you to call, call attention to something here. At this point in time, Samaria has been, Samaria's Israel, has been wiped out. So he's coming to the people of Judah and saying, I'm going to do to you what I did to them. What makes you better than them? Got it? Now, here's another one that they had to explain to them. I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. At this moment in time, when this prophecy comes forward, Babylon is getting to be something, but they've been kind of, they're not the big kid on the block at all. In fact, they're so not the big kid on the block that the king of Judah, when Babylon comes to visit, they're not a, somebody they would worry about. The king of Judah invites them into the treasured storehouse with all the gold. And then when, the, when he leaves, after he leaves, the, he, the prophet comes to him and said, what did you show him? And he said, I showed him all of our good stuff. And he said, you shouldn't have done that because they're going to come back and take it from you. And at that point in time, Israel wasn't thinking Babylon was anything. So you see why we don't think nothing, anything's going to happen of it? They don't even, Babylon, they're nothing. Right? We're stronger than they are. So he says, but I'm going to do this, whom I've appointed as my deputy. I'll bring them all against this land and its people, against the surrounding nation. I'll completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and ruin forever. I will take away your happy singing and laughter. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. Your millstones will fall silent and the lights in your homes will go out. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and the neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon. But watch this one. For 70 years. So these people, we're the Israelites. We've just built our wall. And look what they're doing. They're saying, God told you that he was going to take you away. But he also told you that he was going to bring you back. In 70 years. Wow. This next one, I want to say something. If you're, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, thank God that you're here. I'm so happy that you are. Okay? But I want you to do something. I want you to understand that this next verse is a verifiable verse. A real thing that happened in history, and we can verify it. And if you don't think that there's a God, then explain to me how this happened. Because before Persia had ever taken over Babylon, before Cyrus 
was anybody on anybody's radar anywhere in the world. This was said about this person. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one. This is being prophesied before. Cyrus doesn't know it's being prophesied. It's being prophesied in Israel. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened, never to be shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the mountains, places like Babylon. And Babylon is much more powerful at this point in time than Persia. I will smash down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you treasures hidden in darkness, secret riches. I will do this so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. How's he going to know that? Do you know how he finds out about it? He does, in fact, take over Israel, just like is being said here. I mean, Babylon. And then there's a guy named Daniel in Babylon at that point in time, and he's seeking the Lord. He hears about the 70 years. He looks into it, and he sees that the king of Persia now is a guy named Cyrus. And that God has written this to Cyrus before there was a Cyrus. <laughs> so Daniel takes this to him and says, hey, check this out. <laughs> Do you see it? And it's the reason why Cyrus says, go back 70 years later miraculously. This is why. This verse right here. Secret riches, I'll do this so that you'll know. And why I have called you for this work. Now listen to what he says. Why did I call you by name when you did not know me? Why did I write this before you even knew? It's for the sake of Jacob, my servant. Israel, my chosen one. I'm the Lord, there is no other God. I've equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. I'm the one that gave you prosperity so that you would return my people. See it? Now, like I say, if you don't believe that there's a God, it's tough to figure out what that's all about. Because we can verify that this happened. See it? So you look at these things and you kind of go, Wow. The people hear these passages. We're Israel. We're Israel. We've just built the wall. You hear these passages about 70 years and Cyrus. and you, we, didn't, we weren't thinking about all that stuff. We were just living life and it kind of sucked. Or more than sucked. And now all of a sudden you hear all this kind of stuff. What do you start thinking to yourself? Well, here's what the Israelites thought. They wept as they listened to it. Why did they weep? We didn't have to go through all this. That whole exile, if we'd have repented, if we'd have just not followed those other gods, if we'd have just did what God said, he told us what he was going to do in the most intimate, in the most incredibly detailed way that you could ever imagine. He told us everything. If we'd have just listened, we'd have, we'd have not had to go through all this. You see it? Wow. Right? Last week, not knowing that I'd be preaching this this week, as I told you earlier, we did something. We had everybody talk. And while everybody was talking, if you'll remember, I called out a theme. I said, there's two themes that have come out of this. At the beginning of our talk, what came out of it was this understanding that we are hopeless that we are, we are sinners, that we do not follow God even when we know we should, that we are, there's a hopelessness about our condition that causes us not to actually follow God. And that's what came out in the conversation. I didn't preach that, and I didn't know about this sermon. But do you, all of a sudden, do you, are you seeing a parallel all of a sudden? God is coming to a people who have been exiled, the Israelites, and he's saying... I told you what would happen if you didn't. And then it happened. And now you see that it happened. So own it. You say that I don't move? I moved. Take a look. Repent. Here's why this is so important for us. Wouldn't it be better to get the message before than after? Wouldn't it be? You know who you guys are? You're the salt. 
You're the light. Here's what's not going to work. Hey, everybody who doesn't know God, you need to straighten up or it's going to go bad. Why isn't that going to work? Because that's who we are. <laughs> we do things where we push away God. That's what we do. Here's what you are, the, the new Israel, the new people of God. You're salt. What does that mean? You go out and you badger people about their sin? Let's start with the house of God. Let's start with ourselves. Let's get this thing cleaned up in ourselves. Not just sin. Let's get following him down. Let's get what it is to be the loving hand of God Almighty that can reach out to people who are going through difficulties in a way that brings them to Christ. That's what being salt is. It's preserving another person's life. It's getting it so right in your life that it comes out in a life-giving way in somebody else's. It's not standing on a street corner and shaking your finger about him about the judgment to come. It's pointing your finger back at you and saying, if my life was right, the people that I know and love would be coming to the Lord because of what they saw in me. I need to follow him. I need to listen. I need to keep us from going into something yet more difficult. You see it? I want to tell you something. It's not too late. Repent. Pray. Seek. Be. There's all kinds of things that God can do with this that are extraordinary. Right? Because some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild old shoot, were grafted amongst the others. This is Gentiles and, and Jews, right? And Jewish branches were broken off. But here's the attitude that we need to have as Christians. We think we're, there's always this tendency about the new people in to think that they're somehow different than the people that have been before. And that is such a, that is such a disprovable, stupid arrogance that right here God says, look, don't become proud, but fear. If God didn't spare the natural branches, why is he going to spare you? <laughs> the Johnny-come-latelys, right? If God did this with the Israelite, what makes you think he's going to not do it with Christians? In fact, the other way that we can say it that's in the world, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So let's not do that. <laughs> can we agree to not be the people who help the culture go to hell in a handbasket? Can we agree to start being salt and to start being light? Can we agree that the way that our lives are makes a difference to what's happening in the world and what's happening to people that we love? Can we be the thing of love that escapes them, that gets them from the harshness and the hardness that's going to come to them? Now, yeah, that may bring them to repentance, but wouldn't it be better that they'd come to repentance before they experience the hardness? Well, you're the answer. You're the love. You're the one who can do this. See it? Now, there was two themes in there. The first theme was, at the beginning of our conversation, it was about how we are so helpless. We need help. And then the second part, I almost played the clip because I found it. Right when I said this, I said, wow, it's amazing. There's two themes that are happening here. The first one, which has now ended, is how hopeless we are. And now a second theme came up, and it's how great God is. How wonderful he is. That strong right arm of God that will keep us on path if we'll just pursue him to do that for us. See what I mean? If we'll let him do it, even if we don't like it. But it will help us keep us on track. And now watch what happens. That's what we did last week. And watch the place that God has us this week. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, described the Levites who were interpreting. The people said to them, don't mourn and weep on such a day as this because they're starting to mourn and weep like I just explained. They're saying, don't do that. This is a sacred day. Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts with food with people. Share what you've got. That's what I just said, right? Share this joy. Share this thing. Share what you've got uh, the, the, with people that don't get it. This is a sacred day before the Lord. Don't be dejected and sad. You see what he's saying? He's saying rejoice. Rejoice in what? Is it our wall? That puny little wall that any real army could come and mow down in a heartbeat? Is it that we're becoming a great nation? Because right now all we are is a people that got a little wall. <laughs> what are we supposed to celebrate? What are we supposed to celebrate? God, the God who 
who does these incredible things, who is working, even if we don't see it, even if it's outside the timeline that we preferred because it was inside of our lives. There is this God who does these incredible things. Understand, David is the one who experienced so many difficult things, right? I mean, running around, he was anointed king and then spent the next 17 years hiding in caves from a madman trying to kill him, right? I mean, this is not a pleasant thing. But here's what David says. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And man, when he says that, he's not kidding. This guy was within an inch of his life multiple times. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Now watch where he goes. Watch what this is about. Because this is about a good God who prepares a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. This is the God that David has come to know. This God that causes him to rejoice even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, knowing who God is. David worships God all the time in the Psalms, doesn't he? Where things are bad. <laughs> and he says, well, oh my soul, why are you downcast? Making him stop and making him remember who God is. And in that, he comes into joy. Knowing who he is brings us to joy no matter what our circumstances are right now. You see it? We come to joy before the situation gets better. We come to joy not because the situation, it might, in Hebrews, there's a whole bunch of people in the Hall of Fame of Faith who die brutal deaths and never do see the hope that they were looking for fulfilled. But they hold on and they're in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Why? because they don't need to see it in their lifetime to know that it's true. Though it doesn't happen in my life, it doesn't matter. Because I know who you are doing all these good things. See it? And now all of a sudden we're starting to understand how the joy of the Lord is our strength. See how much more substance we've just put into it? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Knowing Him strengthens me when I'm weak. Strengthens me when I'm in despair. Strengthens me when I've lost hope. If I can remember who he is, if I can bring that back to mind, if I can bring that back to heart, I come into love with him again. And when I come into love with him again, I get overjoyed. It doesn't matter that my circumstances haven't changed. I'm strengthened because of who God is. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Experiencing who he is is my strength, no matter what I'm going through at the moment. Well, that'll be just, shouldn't there be a party happening right now? <laughs> right? I mean, little poppers at least, okay, and a few whistles or something, right? Because who God is, is we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That's who God is. That's who we need to know him as. That's who we need to re remember him and everything else. And I'm going to do something here. I'm going to take one minute and I'm going to explain a way that this works in a life. And it's going to be my life as an illustration. Some of you will remember that a few weeks ago I showed a video of Dave and he said something that really stuck with me and it's been cogitating and going through as the Holy Spirit would have it do. And I'm going to replay it for you real quick. Are we good on sound? Okay. So, every place that we go, it's a it's miracle. about Yellowstone. Right when we get there, the geyser goes up. Like, right. they're, they're everywhere in Yellowstone, but they, you, you know, you have to wait. This one right. goes every 45 right. minutes, this one goes time. every right, right 20 time. minutes. Yeah. Every place, and we couldn't even see it. All we knew is the stars suddenly would be gone by the... Mm -hmm. The guys are, and this is again it's and again, and like like John's like a little kid, and he says to me, he says, 
Don't you think God is in heaven right now, just laughing at how happy we are? And I realized I, I was not thinking like that. In my mind, my, the God in my brain had kind of changed. And he wasn't a God that wanted to bless. He wasn't a God that gave good gifts. You know what I mean? It was like it had changed. And I recognized, wow, I've kind of, I've kind of slipped. And I want to I wanna be like that again, you know? I want to be like that again. And you are. And he kind of, he did bring me back there. Yeah. Absolutely did. I actually believe it does make him happy. Now, Dave was able to say what he was able to say there in part because he's talking about ministry. And let me just tell you something about ministry. It is the absolutely best thing that you could ever do, period. We are made for it, and when we do it, it fulfills us in ways and brings us joy and, and completion and what we were made to be in ways that are outstanding, astounding, and better than anything else. And at the same time, it's so incredibly difficult. Sometimes people will take pot shots at you that you were just shocked about. Sometimes, and that's to you personally, but you know, you try and give me thick skin when you're in ministry. If you're not, you're not going to make it. But then you see other people going through tough stuff, and all you want to do is, you know, Zach, I'd love to pray for you and have everything change in a heartbeat so badly I could taste it. And we have prayed, and it hasn't changed yet. I can tell you what I'm going to keep doing. I'm going to keep praying, and I'm going to keep wanting that to happen. But that hurts, and that weighs on. And there's this old saying in ministry, and it goes like this. You start off with God this big and Satan and the world this big, and all you want to do is communicate to people how beautiful and wonderful and joyful and incredible God is, and you just can't wait to talk about him every single week. And then you get into ministry and, and, and the, the business of it and the hassles of it and the disappointments in it and the this and the that. And you get to this place in time where at some point in time you get to a place to where ministry is kind of a pitched battle between God, the devil, and bad things and you're not quite sure who's going to win anymore. And that's the place where you don't have joy, where you're just fighting. You're wrestling with, you're trying to make it better. And that's how it goes for a minister. How does it go for, for a person that's not necessarily just a you know, person that's not in this kind of ministry. Same thing. You get a first love, right? God is incredible. He's so big. He's so wonderful. And then life. <laughs> and then he gets, you know, and it just kind of happens. And at some point in time, you're kind of like, I don't know, there's this pitch battle going on, and I'm not quite sure who's going to win. And what you're not living in at that point in time is joy. And so I'm walking about, this is about eight days ago right now. I'm walking on my walk, and I'm thinking about the second wedding that's coming up and the finances and that we're likely to have to move from where we live because we can't afford it. And, and I, you know, Mongolia is about the only place with the rents that are going to be low enough for us to live in and make a difference. You know what I mean? And I, I'm not sure what to do, and I'm kind of going to God, and I'm just saying I don't understand. And, and I'm not really saying I don't understand. That's not how I talk to God. But I'm just kind of lamenting. You know what lament is? I'm just kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do? And I'm thinking about, now watch, I'm thinking about ways in the world that I might change this, the move and the this and the that. What might I do to make a difference? Because that's how life works, right? If there's a problem, you got to fix it, right? And I'm sitting there praying to God and trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do in this context. And all of a sudden, God says to me, you've lost your joy. You, you've forgotten who I am. I'm the God who, when you went to seminary, you went there having just lost all of your money and you were dead broke, massively broke. And you went to seminary for four years, two times, you put your resume out because it looked like you might need money because I'd provided for you all the rest. Two times you went out and demonstrated you were willing to get a job and by the time you got home, I'd brought in money for you to continue to live on. And I got all the way through four years of two graduate degrees with no debt. Julie was working and she was providing maybe a quarter of the income that we needed. And all the school debt was on top of that. And all of the school loans, everything, all of that, I graduated with no debt. Now, let me make it clear. We lived poor. 
at times during that time. Sometimes we had enough to go out to dinner, but there were long stretches where we didn't have enough money to do anything else, buy clothes or anything. We lived as poor as the vast majority of people in here. I'd say the only people who lived poorer than us are people that were, did get to real homelessness. Okay? And other than that, I've lived just as, right? But I also got two master's degrees and, and had a wife and two children and no debt. I was provided for through almost, if I'd added it up, it was way over a hundred different ways that God provided for us. And then I went to Hollywood, and for three years I wrote scripts, and half of that time I had a job. Now I want to say something real clear. During that time, I did one decision that I still regret to this day that I think was presumption. God still provided for me. He still took care of it. He still did something nice for me. But I recognized that that was a mistake, and I did something that I shouldn't have done, and it was presumption. It didn't really harm anybody or anything else, but it was just I know between me and the Lord that that was a place where I did what I wanted to do, and I thought it was God at the time, but now I know it wasn't. So I got presumptuous, and I did something that was my choice. Don't think, don't listen to what I'm telling to you right now and say, I can quit my job, and God will provide for me. Okay? You act like that and see how it goes. It will not go well. But God told me to go to seminary, and he paid for the entire seminary. And then I worked for three years in Hollywood, and he provided for us. And oh, a year and a half I worked. And then I went into ministry again. And for three years I was in ministry, and I had no income, and Julie was making oh, maybe a third of what we needed. And the other two-thirds God was providing for us every single week. And again, I came. That's 10 years now. 10 years I lived with a year and a half worth of income that I made that provided for the family. 10 years. And God provided all the rest. And I'm sitting there complaining about why isn't God doing anything. I'm sitting here complaining as if God doesn't ever do anything. I'm walking around going, what do I need to do to fix this? And God is saying, don't you remember who I am? And I didn't. And suddenly in that moment when I was walking, I went, oh, you're that guy. <laughs> you're that God. The God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's who you are. It is incumbent upon me not to be presumptuous, not to just assume it's going to be okay, but to find you and follow you. And to know that you're doing incredible things when you do that. And it doesn't mean it's going to go well for me even then. It just means I know who you are. And when I think about you, who I know you to be, like that, I'm filled with joy. And I'm strengthened. Do you see it? God does not play life like you and I do. We play life according to its rules. Real quickly, I've told you that God backed me off of an 80-hour work week. And, and I, I, he did, the, the thing that finally got my attention was he said, if you, don't, if you don't change, I'm moving you. I'll move you out of here. And I went, I want to be here. So I changed. And even then, I'm working on it. And a few months ago, I came back into the staff and I said, there's something else we need to do to get everybody to back to having balanced lives. Because ministry just has a way. It's so wonderful. It's so incredible. It has a way of taking you over. And I went to the staff and I said, I need you to find blocks of the day that you are not going to do ministry stuff. You're not going to do church stuff. You're just going to live life and enjoy it. You're going you're gonna to smell the rose and you're going to enjoy the sunshine. And you're going to enjoy life. Now, there's no way that I could ever do that. And the reason why was because I have five levels of priority in my task list. This is true. The top level, the one of phone calls of people that I need to return the phone call or I need to reach out to them and talk to them about something, or something like that. God's told me to do something. Something I have to do, not that I can delegate or anything else. That top level of priority, stuff I have to do, runs about 120 to 180 items. And there's no chance I'm ever going to get those done. And you tell me that I'm supposed to take more time off, and all it means to me in my natural mind is, it's now going to be 250, and then 300, and then 400, and then 500 in despair. But let me tell you what's happened is I've obeyed the Lord. Last week, that list was, that top priority was at 40. The lowest that I've seen it in probably 10 years. 
my inbox, which I tend to try and keep really hard to keep clean, but it always has 50 emails that I don't have enough time to deal with how complex this issue is. So I'm always trying to find a hole where I can spend time to, to work on the complexity of this. I had one email in my inbox last week. So as I obeyed the Lord and took time off, God took burden off. I tried to slip back in a little bit this week, and God loaded me up again. What do you think I'm going to do next week? <laughs> do we know who God is? Or are we living it the way that the world says? Are we, do we know who God is? We need to get to the place to where you obey him to the point that even if it never happens for you, what you needed, what you wanted, what you thought, though he slay me, I'm in love with him. I trust him. You're good. That's where we need to get to. God is shaking his body, you, me, us. God is shaking us to get rid of everything that's a lie that we would lean on and think this is what makes my life the way that it is. Because jobs and bank accounts and cars and houses and all that kind of stuff are the shakable things. Right? The joy of the Lord is truly my strength and so here's what I want you to do this week. Every time you have a trial, a struggle, a disappointment, despair, fear, concern, hopelessness, every time anything seems overwhelming, and, and write this down, would you please? Write this down in a, in a little something that you can pull off and stick somewhere. Write this down, and what I want you to do is every time that you have a thought of hopelessness or of despair or of fear or of, of just frustration or anything like that, every time that the world seems to be getting up on you, I want you to say, remind yourself who he is and say to yourself, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Because you know what it means now. Right? I got God on my side. If God be for me, who can be against me? No weapon formed against me is going to prosper. Greater is he that's with me than he that's in the world. You see it? He's a good God doing good things. And it doesn't matter how it works out in my life. It doesn't matter. We need to get down to the rock-solid bottom of it. He's doing incredible things always. I want you to do it right now. I want you to take that piece of paper. There's a pen in front of you. I want you to take a piece of paper. I want you to take your pen, and I want you to, I want you to just think to yourself, write down, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and think about the things right now. Let the Holy Spirit bring them to you, the things that are overwhelming you, the things that have you in tribulation, the things that have you in trial, and write down. You, you just, you've written down, the joy of the Lord is my strength. See what happens when you do that. Think about that thing that's got you, and then think about God that's bigger. When you think of one and dispose of it again with the joy of the Lord being your strength and think of another. Let the Holy Spirit bring you another one. Reach down in front of you. Two cups. Bottom cup has bread in it. Pull that one and put it in your right hand or left hand if you're left-handed. God, we don't really know who you are. You've given us lots of reasons to know, but we don't remember it. 
We just don't live and learn from the past, and so we're doomed to repeat it. We've let the, the rules of the world dictate how we're supposed to be and not you. And in so doing, we have broken our lives. We have, we have lost the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills and created everything. And we have gained some stupid wisdom of the world that doesn't even, isn't even true anyway. And so now we repent of that. We walk away from it, and we do so with a real repentance, but we do so with a celebration in our hearts as we turn our face to the God who provides, the God who heals, the God who covers, the God who makes us righteous. You, God, who do so many, 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 many things for us so beautifully and gloriously. Oh, God, you are astounding. And as we gaze upon you, what you did to heal us on the cross, Jesus, for the better life that you have for us. We recognize the brokenness. We put our finger in there and we break that bread, saying, I have broken my life by just forgetting who you are. So take. Thank you, Jesus. Heal us. And now we lift this cup in which is the new life that you have. And we say thank you, thank you, and thank you again. Glory to your name, Lord God. In Jesus' holy and precious name, bring us into the life that you have. You've already purchased it for us. It's just waiting for us. God, by your strong right arm, bring us in. In Jesus' name, take together, would you? Ushers, thank you for coming forth. Congregation, thank you for pouring out. Thank you for saying to God right now, thank you. This is, the, this is what we're doing when we tithe, right? We're saying thank you for what you gave us. We give back 10% of what you gave us. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, receive from our hands thanksgiving and praise. Receive from our hands a cheerful gift from a joyful heart. Because we remember, proclaim, and own who you are.